Turn uh, with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 will be beginning in verse 27. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and going through verse 34. Let's pray. Thank you for this passage in front of us, Lord, and we thank you that you have given to us a sufficient word in Scripture. I pray that we would cherish the whole counsel of God and that we would love every word that you have given to us. As we look at this passage in front of us and find that we are to engage in self-examination, I pray that we would do this today and every day as we uh, seek to follow you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. American Christianity has done a pretty good job at degrading and devaluing divine worship. We do not value the holiness of God like we ought to. Worship has become soft. It has become passive. One author observed modern worship and said, in many cases, the guy who is leading the worship service is very soft-spoken, quiet, and passive. He may or may not be that way off stage, but up front, that's the demeanor that is considered spiritual. Worship today is passive. It is postmodern. It is always journeying and never arriving. There is no truth, and therefore there are no consequences. Worship, in many ways, today is all about me. And even when worship is carried out in a church faithfully and biblically, we can, as individuals, come to that worship in a very casual and flippant way. In the Old Testament, worship was a different experience altogether. When you went to an Old Testament worship service, uh, you did not have theater seating. You did not have the experience that many churches offer today. You did not even have the experience that you have here at Crossview Church. In the Old Testament, animals were being slaughtered. Blood was absolutely everywhere, on the ground, on the altar, covering the priest. The smell of burning flesh was everywhere. And you never heard, Jesus is my boyfriend worship music. And it is in the Old Testament where we first learn of God's fierce jealousy for worship that reflects his holiness. In Amos chapter 5, we read this, I hate, I despise your feasts and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, uh, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Just consider what happened to Nadab and Abihu. They offered strange fire, which means that they attempted to worship God, but not in God's prescribed manner. And of course, their fate is given to us in Leviticus chapter 10. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Or consider uh, Uzzah. I think few would argue that he had sincere motives. God had prescribed that the ark was to be carried on poles, but Israel instead put the ark on a cart pulled by oxen. 
And when the oxen stumbled, the ark was going to fall off the cart. So Uzzah reached out his hand to stabilize the ark, and he touched the ark of God, which he said you should not touch. And God struck that man dead immediately. First Chronicles chapter 13, verses 9 through 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put his hand out to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Likewise, consider the consequences of the golden calf incident. They were worshiping Yahweh through the calf, and here's the result. The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Or consider Achan in the Old Testament again, Joshua chapter 7. The Lord told Israel, you are to devote everything to destruction in Jericho. Achan took some of the devoted things for himself, and we read this. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Or consider when the Philistines returned the ark to Israel. Remember, they captured the ark for that short period of time, and then they returned the ark to Israel. And the ark was in Beth Shemesh. And some of the men of that town, this Israelite town, looked upon the ark. And here's the account there in 1 Samuel 6. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And lest you say that was in that Old Testament with that different God than is in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with, and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Then, of course, his wife comes in and did not know what had happened. And we read this, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Finally, we have a rather startling reality in our passage in front of us in 1 Corinthians 11, and that is this. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. The reality is that in the New Testament, false worshipers are still dying for their false worship. Same God. And Corinthians makes it clear that people still die inside of the church for their false worship. And it is for this reason that here, even now, in the 21st century, we still approach the Lord in fear and reverence. Let's read the text in front of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, we read this. Therefore, 
or who, uh, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. There are three sections that we'll look at this text in today. It is going to be, uh, the first part is the examination that takes place, the second part is the judgment, and then finally the prescription that we will conclude with today. We pick up the text this week from last week's observation that the Corinthian Christians were abusing the Lord's Supper. We saw that and went through that and and saw how they were kind of rushing to the, the table and the Uh, Some were getting drunk, and then some were arriving late and starving. They were committing specifically the sin of partiality. They were taking kind of the way that the world had uh, differentiated amongst people, and they were bringing that into the church and kind of having that same uh, status in the church. Paul begins uh, to tell us today, then, how this problem is supposed to be corrected. He tells us in verse 27 uh, that whoever eats uh, the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, this is communion, of course, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, two questions come to mind right from the start in this verse. Question number one is this. What does verse 27 mean when it says that we might eat and drink in an unworthy manner? What does it mean to do that? If we're not supposed to do that, then we should know what it is to do that so that we don't do it when we come to communion. How can we avoid eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? What does that mean? And second, what does it mean that those who commit this error of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord? What does he mean by that, that they will be guilty of this? All right, let's do the first question first. What does it mean that we would take partake in an unworthy manner? Well, in addressing our first question, let's go to first base first. And here is the sobering reality. All of us are unworthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's start there. Nobody is worthy of that. You have not cleaned yourself up enough. You have not made yourself righteous enough. You have not somehow arrived in some kind of a fashion so that you are inherently worthy in yourself. We are unworthy to receive God's grace. And of course, since the Lord's Supper points us to the reality of the gospel, we understand also that all of us are unworthy recipients of the gospel itself. All of us are unworthy of salvation, unworthy of grace, and unworthy of God's kindness. And yet, he has given that to us in spite of that, because he is a loving God. But I want us to pay very close attention to the language in this verse here. He says 
that those who partake in an unworthy manner will be guilty. Now, the, word, the words unworthy manner, two words in the English, is one word in the Greek, and it is an adverb, and the word means unworthily. So it's not unworthy, it's unworthily, translated into English as an unworthy manner. This is important. There is a difference between unworthy and unworthily. Fundamentally, this means that as unworthy sinners, we can partake of communion in a worthy manner or worthily. One commentator remarks and says this, although no one is worthy of the Lord's Supper, one can eat it worthily. Okay? So unworthy sinners may partake worthily. What does it mean to do that? Well, in context, what were the, the Corinthian Christians doing? Do you remember from last week? They were committing the sin of, I just said it earlier a few minutes ago, partiality. They were committing this particular sin. They were coming into the church, and there was different status going on, and, and those who were rich were um, becoming gluttonous with the Lord's Supper, not leaving anything left for, for those who were poor. Most likely what was going on in this context was those who were poor, uh, they had been working all day, and they were coming in late. And so what's going on is that they were engaging in the sin of partiality. Uh, unworthy sinners may partake worthily. And the key qualification, I think, is that to partake worthily is to do this. What does it mean to partake worthily? It is to judge yourself to be unworthy. This is what the Corinthian Christians needed to do because they were doing the opposite of this. Let, 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 me, let me explain. If you come to the table, if you come to the Lord's Supper committing the sin of partiality, which is what they were doing, they were coming to the table carrying with them the sin of partiality, what were they saying when they were doing that? They were saying, you are unworthy and I am worthy. That's exactly what they were doing. They were making a, a, a mental ranking in their mind, and they were making judgments about who was worthy enough, good enough. Maybe it had to do with money or status or power or whatever. But they were at least making a distinction between those who were worthy of coming to the Lord's Supper and those who were not. The fact that they could go week after week after week and allow these people to come to the Lord's Supper, not have any food left over, and they would starve is indicative of the fact that they did not think that they were too worthy to be able to be here. To partake then in a worthy manner is to come to the table and say, I'm not worthy of this. Therefore, all of us can partake together. I'm no more worthy than you are. And you're no more worthy than I am. And we all come here solely by the grace of God. 
That's what it means to partake in a worthy manner or worthily. This is one of the paradoxes in the Christian faith, and that is that the way up is down. Believe you are worthy, and you are partaking in an unworthy manner. Believe you are unworthy, and you are partaking in a worthy manner. That's the first question. What does it mean to partake in a worthy manner? It means to approach the Lord's table with humility, knowing that we need Christ for this and his grace. That takes us to our second question, and that is, we ask this, uh, what does it mean that those who partake in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord? And I think it best to quote, uh, quote uh, one particular commentator here um, on this. Uh, this is from Baker Exegetical uh, Commentary. And he says this, Paul's logic is this, the Lord's Supper proclaims the Lord's death. Those whose behavior at the Lord's Supper does not conform to what that death entails effectively shift sides. They leave the Lord's side and align themselves with the rulers of this present age who crucified the Lord. This explains how they make themselves so vulnerable to God's judgment. In other words, if you partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily, you are acting as if you were God's enemy. If you partake unworthily, you are, you are denying the gospel itself. You're saying, I, don't, I, I'm, I bring my worth to this. And you're acting like the enemy of God. If you come to communion with the sin of partiality, that is, you believe you are worthy and others are not, then you are denying the gospel message itself. You are denying what communion points to, namely the gospel. You're saying this, yes, I know that communion and the gospel declare my sinfulness and God's holiness and God's mercy, but I don't care. I'll come to this table because there is something about me that deserves this, something about me that is worthy of this, and those people over there are obviously unworthy of it. And then God says right here in 1 Corinthians 11, you're guilty of the crucifixion because you don't understand how the gospel works. Indeed, you oppose the gospel by your actions. You are actively opposing my free grace and saying people can be recipients of grace only if I deem them worthy enough of that grace. That is to work against what communion is, is functioning as. Communion is showing us that we all need God's grace that we all are unworthy, that we all require forgiveness, and they are denying this by their very actions. The remedy then is to come to the table with sobriety and care and intentionality and examination. Notice what verse 28 says. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The remedy for partaking in an unworthy manner is to engage in self-examination. Now, of course, this is not the only place in Scripture that reminds us that we are to engage in self-examination. We see in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? This is a test 
of justification. Am I justified? This is commanded of us as believers to engage in this kind of self-examination. This is different from someone who is struggling with the assurance of their salvation. This is part and parcel of what the Christian ought to do on a regular basis. Okay, what is the gospel? Have I trusted in that? Am I in Christ? What are the fruits of that? Self-examination. We should do this on a regular basis. David reminds us of this self-examination in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. This time, not a self-examination with regard to justification, but a self-examination with regard to sanctification. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Self-examination or introspection is something that we are exhorted to engage in as Christians. We are to engage in introspection regarding our salvation or our justification. We are to engage in introspection regarding our sanctification, as David reminds us here in Psalm 139. And as the text in front of us indicates, one of the times to do this, one of the times where we are specifically commanded to engage in this self-examination is when? It is at communion. It is at the Lord's table that we are to intentionally do this at least at this time, and I would say above and beyond this in our Christian life as well. What this means is that as we come to communion, and by the way, let me, let me clarify something here. We give a time intentionally set aside to self-examination at communion when we do this on the first Sunday of the month. Okay, we are not implying that that is the only allotted time you have to engage in self-examination. May I suggest to us that we can begin self-examination for communion on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, getting things right that need to be made right. And then as we come into Sunday, there is an additional time that we have for that. You should think of that additional time as kind of the the cream, okay? The the last little bit before communion comes. We are to, when we engage in self-examination, take our life, line it up with God's word, repent over the aspects of our life that does not match up with the word of God. Now, specifically, and in the immediate context, that would be sins of partiality. And so this passage in context calls us to engage in self-examination and ask ourselves if we are at peace with one another here at Crossview Church. And if not, we are to get those things right prior to worship. I want to read to you from the Westminster Catechism. talks about this self-examination and asks the question, how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come unto it? And it says this, they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are, before they come, to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves of their being in Christ, that's justification, of their sins and wants, 
and the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, love to God and the brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong, of their desires after Christ and of their new obedience, and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. So if you want a list, there's a list. (laughs) We are to engage in self-examination prior to the Lord's Supper. There is, by the way, a purifying aspect to the Lord's Supper here on the local church level. John MacArthur says the table thus becomes a special place for the purifying of the church. And this is a regular reminder for us that we should be purifying ourselves. There should be a purification of sorts that happens here at communion. The church should be growing in sanctification and practical holiness at every observation of the Lord's Supper. We've been talking about sanctification at the 9 a.m. service, and one of the places where we grow in our sanctification is here at the Lord's table. Now, furthermore, it is a sin to withhold the Lord's Supper from those who are repentant. Uh, A pastor cannot exhort a church member to refrain if they are genuinely repentant. Now, we can say, a pastor can say, and we can say to one another, you have not repented over this sin. You, You cannot partake until you repent over this sin, so repent. Okay, But if a person has repented, there is no plan of penance that we have to enact, okay? This person who has, you know, sinned in, in whatever way it is, they don't have to say 10 Hail Marys, okay? We don't say any Hail Marys, okay? But <laughs> you understand what we're saying here. There's no kind of, okay, let me wait and see, and you need to do some kind of community service or this or whatever or that, This is functioning like the gospel functions. This doesn't mean that the person doesn't need to grow, but it does mean when they are repentant, they can partake of the Lord's table, and they are welcome at the Lord's table. Uh, And I do, by the way, uh, um, believe that we are to, provided that our children have made a profession of faith, that they can partake of the Lord's table too. Because they are, we would assume by this profession of faith, in Christ. And so we are not to refrain from this uh, if there is genuine repentance and trust in Christ. To do so is a transgression against unity in the church. Instead, we are to repent of our sins, lean into the fellowship at the table. But for those who resist that, there is judgment. We read this in verses 29 through 32. If anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Here's what he's saying. If you do not discern the body, then the cup of blessing becomes a cup of judgment. Something that was supposed to be and intended to be a blessing to you from God now becomes judgment from God on you. 
Now, there are several views here on what exactly discerning the body means. He says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that mean? What what does it mean to say that, okay, we're going to have communion today, and if any of you don't discern the body, then judgment is coming upon you. You would probably say, that sounds kind of serious. I don't want judgment to come on me. Can you just tell me what discerning the body is first so I can know if I'm doing this or not before I partake? Um, To fully appreciate the play on words here, the Greek word, which is translated as discerning, has the word judge as its root. So it's related to the word judgment later in the verse. So in a sense, he's kind of saying this, anyone who eats or drinks without judging the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you don't judge the body, then you'll be judged. Which might not help too much to understand what's being said here. What does this word mean, discern? It means to differentiate or to evaluate. If if anyone who eats and drinks without differentiating the body, anyone who eats and drinks without evaluating the body, does that help a little bit? What does it mean? Um... I think that what is being said here is that it makes sense to understand that when we come to communion, we are to discern or differentiate this activity from other activities. This is not your standard, I'm sitting down to eat a meal. You are discerning this to be different. You are differentiating this activity. You are judging this activity to stand apart from other activities. So you don't approach the Lord's Supper the same way that you would approach breakfast before you come to church on Sunday morning. Um, There's something different there. You're differentiating that. Now what is fascinating about this is that the cup which is a blessing, when you, when you fail in this area and you don't differentiate this, which, by the way, is what the Corinthians were doing in context, right? They were treating this like any other meal and letting people starve, which shouldn't be any other meal, but they were treating this very casually. They were not discerning the body. They were not differentiating the body. They were coming to it in a casual Uh, attitude. When you do that, the cup of blessing becomes judgment. Sinclair Ferguson has a astute observation on this. He says, the word never returns in failure, but fulfills its function, either in transforming or hardening. By the way, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail here. However, every time you listen to the word of God, the word of God will be successful. There is no neutrality when it comes to God's word. It will either um, 
transform a person or it will harden a person. In that sense, there is a certain danger in listening to God's word. Uh, what is the, um, the old uh, adage that the same sun that um, melts the wax hardens the clay, right? And so that's kind of what he's saying here. Similarly, the sacraments of the gospel will, in keeping with our response to the ministry of the Spirit in displaying the grace of Christ, either, he's saying the sacraments will also either transform in grace or harden under judgment. See, not only is God's word going to either transform or harden you, communion will transform or harden you. You will not leave away, you will not leave communion unaffected. It will have an effect on you. Even if you can't necessarily perceive that in the moment, it will have either a hardening or a softening effect. Uh, he says this, Paul explicitly hints at this when he warns the Corinthians that in coming to the Lord's Supper in a careless spirit, they do not leave unchanged. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper will succeed either way. It will either be a blessing to you or it will be a curse to you. There is no neutrality. And it is for this reason that many of the Corinthians died. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. People were physically dying at the church of Corinth because of the way they abused the Lord's table. Now, if we were to set this verse, 1 Corinthians 11.30, alongside the book of Job, we would walk away with this conclusion. Some physical death and physical ailment has direct spiritual causes. But not all physical death and physical ailment has direct spiritual causes, right? Now, all physical death and physical ailment does have an indirect spiritual cause because all of it comes as a result of what? The fall of man, our sinfulness. Tornadoes that destroy communities and hurricanes, death, Suffering, all of that is caused at least indirectly by the fall because God has placed a curse on the world as a result of the fall. However, not every illness that you go through means that you specifically sinned in some way and therefore God is punishing you in this way. Some does, some does not. And so if you are sick and you ask me to visit you and you were to say, is my sickness a direct result of my sin? My answer would be this. Maybe, maybe not. However, I would suggest to us that all sickness is an opportunity or an occasion for introspection. It is an occasion for self-evaluation. It is an occasion for repentance. So see how we're kind of holding this little bit of attention here? 
Some want to fall into the group of Job's friends who say, you obviously sinned, otherwise this wouldn't happen. And God rebuked Job's friends. And by the way, at the end of Job, God says, you guys are in trouble unless Job prays for you, (laughs) ironically. And then we have here in Corinthians, it might be because of something, some way that you've sinned, that this is coming into your life. I don't know that. We can't point fingers and say this, but we know that it's a possibility. You can't say that it is always a result of sin because then you're facing the problem that Job's friends face. And you can't say it is never a result of sin because then you have to deny 1 Corinthians 11. If we want to avoid sin being the cause of these things, then we have to pay attention to verses 31 through 32, which says if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You don't want to be judged? Then judge yourself truly. But if we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, in other words, what does it mean if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged? It means this, judge yourself before God does. In other words, do the self-inventory, do the introspection, and say, do I need to repent? Let me repent now before God steps in and deals with this. If you would have judged yourself truly, if you would have come, Corinthians, to the Lord's table and truly judged yourself and realized you were engaging in the sin of partiality, repented and turned away from that, you wouldn't, there would be no need for you to be sick and die. So you should repent first, quickly, keeping a short sin account. Are you in sin? Then repent. Anyone in sin here today? Repent. Repent immediately. You say, where's the hope in that? There is, there is hope in this passage. Okay? It might, it might be a little bit veiled. You might have to read it through a couple of times. Say, this is, man, what a harsh passage. People are dying. People are being judged. You know, this is like Nadab and Abihu all over again. Yeah, it kind of is in a sense. But there also is a nugget of truth in here, and it is in these two verses. Anyone see the nugget of hope that we have in this particular section? He says in verse 32, that we may not be condemned along with the world. Notice that there are three different words used here all referring to some sort of judgment. Judged. Disciplined. And condemnation. You see all three of those words here? If we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. When we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. We know this from the book of Hebrews. The Lord disciplines every son that he loves. And this happens so that we will not be, what, condemned along with the world. What he's saying is there is a condemnation that the world faces that you won't ever face. Do you see how he's distinguishing between the believer and the unbeliever? The person of the world and the person who is not of the world who is the believer? The believer undergoes what in these two verses? Out of those three words, judgment, discipline, and condemnation, 
What does the believer go through or could go through? Discipline and judgment. Okay? The believer is, can be judged in this sense of the word, and the believer can be disciplined, but he says that the believer will not go through what? Condemnation. Now, another observation. What is the source of the judgment and the discipline? Or who is the source? It is God. Okay? God is actively judging the believer. He is actively disciplining the believer. Okay? This is coming from the hand of God. The believer undergoes judgment. He undergoes discipline. Both are from God. God is doing the disciplining. God is doing the judging. But note what doesn't happen. We are not condemned. What does this remind you of? Romans, I think I heard it, 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Do you realize the joy that is right here alone? He is saying, even when Christians, genuine born-again believers, are abusing the Lord's table, I will only judge slash discipline you, but you will still never be condemned along with the world. You will still never face the wrath of God in eternity. Do you realize the hope? This is the gospel right here. This is the gospel message in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I have to say one thing about this, and that is the temptation would be to say, well, (laughs) if I'm going to escape condemnation, then I don't have to be so serious about obedience to God in this area. It's okay if I... Did you not read the whole rest of the passage? You realize that these go together. This is like one passage together, not separate. It's not a pick and choose. You don't get to come to this and say, I, I pick the condemnation-free, I can sin whatever, whenever I want to version. Um, you come to this with the whole package. If your genuine, genuine heart attitude is, I'll do whatever I want because of this no condemnation, then you need to go back and reread the examination part and ask, am I even in the faith at all? Because this is not the attitude of God's children. God's children don't think that way. When, when we explain grace to the unbelieving world, they think that we think that way. But if we really are a believer, we don't think that way. We can't think that way. We don't want to think that way. We want to please God. Nothing pleases us more as believers than when we are pleasing the Lord and he is delighted in us in return. And so you need to ask yourself, am I really in the Lord if that is my heart attitude? Now, with that being said, with that caveat in place there, keep in mind that this no condemnation aspect means that our ultimate fate does not hinge on our performance, but on God's grace. 
And that is the whole reason for communion in the first place, to show us that we need God. And not to come to the table with partiality and saying, you need God, but I don't need God. We all need God. What then do we do as a response to this? Well, this is the last two verses. He says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The prescription then, this application um, is probably, uh, we have to apply this, we are, we are applying this directly, let me say it that way, because I think we are, I hope we are. We're not coming to the Lord's table and having a full-out meal, okay? You're, you, I'm guessing that none of you have come to communion here and been hungry and then been full when you left, Okay. There's not very much that you're getting at that, okay? Um, So how then do we apply this particular passage? Um, The prescription is to discern the body or to treat the Lord's Supper with the reverence it deserves. We're not to be gluttons. Eating is for at home. This is for something more significant. For the Corinthians, they needed to wait for one another and not be gluttonous. And then for us, we need to treat it with the reverence that it deserves, not bring partiality into the Lord's table. And then he gives this final closing little comment about the other things I will give directions when I come. And uh, if you were to ask me the question, what are those other things, I have no idea. Uh, And this simply is Paul's way of closing out this particular topic. So where do we go from here? Um, American culture has degraded and devalued uh, everything. Everything that it has touched, American culture has devalued. Now, some of you um, are old enough to remember. I'm not old enough to remember this. Some of you might be. I don't know. A day when if your neighbor invited you over for dinner at their house, you would put on a suit and tie, okay? There was a day when you would make everything uh, an important occasion. There was something special. There was something important about that. And, And I'm not necessarily saying that every time you go to the grocery store or go to your neighbor's house that you need to have a suit and tie. We can talk about that. But what I am saying is that American culture has tended to take everything and bring it down, bring it down, bring it down, bring it down, bring it down. And one of the places that it does that is in the area of worship. We are a nation of trite worshipers. And it would be wise of us to return to sober worship, to return to God-focused, not man-focused, but God-focused worship, it would be good for us to seek the Lord in our worship. I have uh, four points of application for us today. Number one, worship the Lord in fear and reverence. This passage opens up the possibility that you could come to worship and abuse the Lord's table, 
abuse worship, and you will literally die because of that. Or you could become seriously ill. The text says that, okay? The text gives us that opportunity. I'm not saying, again, I don't know if I have to go all the way back to this part of the message. I'm not saying that every time you are sick, it's because of that. But the text presents to us the possibility that you could face physical death because of your attitude in worship. You could. And so worship the Lord in fear and reverence. Number two, come to the Lord's table with humility, not counting yourself as better than others uh, by engaging in the sin of partiality. Everyone who is repentant and a believer in Christ is welcome at the Lord's table. Male, female, black, white, red, green, American, Japanese, provide the list. It doesn't matter. All are welcome at the table, provided you are in Christ and you are repentant. Do not bar people from the Lord's table. Number three, engage in self-examination prior to observing communion, lest the cup of blessing becomes a cup of judgment. And my suggestion earlier was that this doesn't have to and probably should not take place in the five minutes before communion, but should be taking place earlier in the week. In fact, this should be a disposition of your life. You can be engaging in self-examination in preparation for communion when you walk out from communion one week and you are engaging for the next month's communion and self-examination. And finally, rejoice that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are without Christ, the plea today is for you to come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, know that while there are difficulties in this life, there will be no condemnation for you because of the hope of the gospel. Thank you for today, God, and your kindness and your love. Help us to be sober worshipers, to love you, to get sin right, to honor you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.